James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is a special 9-11 edition of Please Go On, our weekly podcast that goes deeper with the authors of important op-eds. Two pieces in particular got me thinking this week. One, about whether Americans are safer today than we were on September 10th, 2001, and another about what the last two decades have been like for those whose loved ones were killed in the attack on America. I've never stopped struggling to understand how my father's strong, stocky body just went away, disintegrated. The need to find him has never left, nor the sadness of knowing I never will. That's Kimberly Rex, a New Yorker whose father was killed in the World Trade Center on September 11th. We're going to hear Kimberly's story a bit later in the episode. First, Michael Leiter. His recent op-ed is titled, Losing Afghanistan is Bad, but we're much safer from terrorism now than after 9-11. Leiter was director of the National Counterterrorism Center from 2007 until 2011, under both Presidents George W. Bush and Barack Obama. He got the job after helping establish the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And before attending Harvard Law School, where he was editor-in-chief of the Law Review, Mike was a naval flight officer. Here's our conversation. Before we kind of dig into the threat environment and how it's changed and evolved, I was just hoping you could reflect 20 years later, what does 9-11 mean to you? What are you thinking about on this anniversary? First, it's remarkable that it's been 20 years. Like most major events, it it feels like it was both yesterday and feels like a a lifetime ago, given all that has happened uh, over the past 20 years. When 9-11 happened, I was at the Supreme Court. I was a young lawyer clerking for Justice Breyer. And um, I, I remember the degree of confusion that reigned that day. And what I, I think I didn't remotely appreciate at the time was how much it was going to change the world. I mean, people sort of said it, and I guess I thought I understood it, but I I didn't fully appreciate how it would affect so many lives and so many people around the globe. So I think looking back on it 20 years later, um, it's remarkable from a personal perspective how much it affect my, my life. But I also do reflect on, I of course reflect on the almost 3,000 killed that day, but I I reflect on the tens of thousands, really the millions of people whose lives were affected one way or another, almost all for the worst. I think the U.S. did some very good things, but it really was the starting point of, as we said at the time and see now, a generational struggle and a two-decade war that is not yet over, uh, and how how tragic it was. So I think on the 20th anniversary, I'm reflecting on the good things we did, all the horror that that day began, and still in many ways how far we have to go. I want to talk about all of those things, but first let's talk about Afghanistan. This has obviously been the big public focus the last several weeks, and you write, in your op-ed for The Post, one narrative emerging out of the tragedy in Afghanistan is both wrong and potentially counterproductive. The conclusion that our withdrawal represents a return to a pre-9-11 situation that puts us at risk in the same way that led to the deaths uh, of almost 3,000 Americans 20 years ago. In what way are we safer now than we were two decades ago? 
I think we're safer in two principal ways. First, we're simply better at protecting ourselves. 9-11 was really a watershed moment for the counterterrorism community, the intelligence community, the law enforcement community that really didn't think about the prevention of attacks as core to their mission. And in many ways, we rebuilt the U.S. government around this threat. We spent billions of dollars to harden airplanes and trains and critical infrastructure. We obviously improved our intelligence capabilities in countless ways. And if you then replicate that in other allied countries, the United Kingdom, Canada, all of Western Europe, Southeast Asia, what you end up with is just a heck of a lot better defense. We're better at finding people before they launch attacks. We're better at stopping attacks and we're better at minimizing the damage done by attacks. So in that sense, we're much safer. The, the second way in which I think we're safer, although it is harder to capture perfectly, is I think that the violent Sunni extremist movement that launched al-Qaeda and that al-Qaeda in some part drove has lessened its focus on attacking the U.S. homeland. If one looks at the numbers of people who are killed by violent Sunni extremists like ISIS and like al-Qaeda, the numbers are generally declining. And they are certainly declining in the United States and Western Europe. That's not to say that the threat has completely gone. It has not. But I think the core motivation that drove al-Qaeda to bring down those four airplanes isn't as resonant with some who still lean towards terrorism, who have tended over the past 20 years to focus a little bit more on local grievances and local problems than what they still call and did call at the time the far enemy. Looking specifically at the threat emanating from Afghanistan, you say counterterrorism work will be more difficult there, but also far more effective than it was the last time the Taliban controlled Afghanistan. Can you elaborate on that point? We hear the administration talk all the time about over-the-horizon capabilities. Obviously, we are able to do things in Yemen and Somalia without having physical troop presences, but how are we safer and less safe not having a presence there anymore? First, people forget how little we knew and how poor we were at this pre-9-11. Our intelligence understanding of what was going on in Afghanistan and al-Qaeda was minimal. Counterterrorism was almost a backwater of the intelligence community, the law enforcement community. People didn't focus on it. And there certainly wasn't a, a really focused White House over several administrations. That is remarkably different today. Now, we won't have a presence on the ground in Kabul and an embassy. We won't have forward operating bases throughout Afghanistan the way we have over the past 20 years. But not all of our relationships in Afghanistan have been, in my view, irrevocably destroyed by this withdrawal. There are still people with whom the intelligence community will speak, from whom they will collect intelligence. There are technical methods of collecting intelligence a variety of means that we've gotten very good at over the past 20 years. We will work with partners, as I say in my op-ed, imperfect partners, but partners like Pakistan. And I think the totality of that can still provide important intelligence that will help trigger us if there are significant plots emanating from Afghanistan. And of course, 
once you have that intelligence, you have to be able to do something about it. Because obviously the Taliban won't be thrilled about it, but we will do it as we have in other places, even if we don't have perfect relations with the host government or even permission. It's not to say that this is an easy problem. And in many ways, it is a trickier problem than what we've had over the past 20 years. But it is a problem that we have addressed elsewhere. And I think we also have to be honest with ourselves that the lack of a significant U.S. presence on the ground in Afghanistan may, we don't know this yet, but may also reduce some of the antipathy which drives the desire to attack the United States in the first instance. That isn't guaranteed, but it is something we should strive for. And last, I believe that the Taliban may be willing to partner with us on some of this. General Milley just said this the other day. This is not going to be a deep, close alliance by any stretch for many reasons. But the question is, do we have enough in common when facing terrorist groups like ISIS-K that we can collaborate in certain ways? And what's your view of how bad the ISIS-K threat is? I mean, the Taliban obviously has an incentive and self-interest to crack down on ISIS-K. How worried should we be about it? I think ISIS writ large has proven itself quite able to pull in adherents from around the globe and inspire a generation towards an Islamic state. Uh, I think its defeat, largely its defeat in Syria and Iraq, has certainly dampened its attraction to some. I think ISIS-K is likely in that vein. And and people talk about, well, there are 2,000 ISIS-K members. I think that is real precision for the sake of accuracy. People try to divvy up who belongs to which group in Afghanistan is a massive challenge. So I think they have a presence there. I think the Taliban is certainly not their friend. And I think they have some ability to potentially recruit people and launch an attack. But I think they're going to be equally focused on attacking the Taliban. And uh, this is one of those cases where that's actually good for us. Going back to one of the original points, if ISIS-K remains focused on the near enemy, the Taliban, that makes it harder for them to launch attacks on the far enemy. And again, that's a significant difference from what we had in Afghanistan pre-9-11. After 9-11, countering terrorism became an almost all-consuming focus of the national security apparatus. We clearly made some decisions we wouldn't make today in the name of trying to win the war on terror. How has this dynamic changed over time? It's so easy to slip right back into, oh my God, here we go again, nothing has changed. And even at the time when I ran the National Counterterrorism Center between 2007 and 2011, I think we already had a pretty strong appreciation that if we only thought about terrorism, we were going to make some very bad choices. We were going to partner with some people, leaders in the world, that in the long run were not, they were not aligned with U.S. interests or U.S. values, and that could make the problem worse. And as you said, we could also pour so much of our time, resource, and and blood and treasure into this problem that global competitors had an opportunity to rise and influence the globe in ways that we didn't want them to. I think the White House today many of whom are people who came out of the Obama administration, their basic inclination is to not fall into that mode. And by the way, I think by the second George W. Bush administration, President Bush very much understood how 
these priorities, terrorism priorities and other national security priorities had to be balanced. Uh, but I think the Obama administration certainly came in with that view. And that doesn't mean that you can't be very tough on terrorism. I, I think the Obama administration, by significantly increasing the use of over-the-horizon targeting in Pakistan against al-Qaeda, uh, although it deepened commitment on that counterterrorism front, it still balanced that with other investments. I think we have to continue to do that now. And one of the reasons I wrote the piece was the political rhetoric of the moment about what was clearly a messy and not well-executed withdrawal for many reasons, the political tenor started to turn right back to we can never, ever give people any room whereby they might be able to launch an attack somewhere around the globe. And I don't think that's realistic. We actually do have to prioritize. We do have limited opportunities. And if we only focus on that risk, the terrorism risk, we're undoubtedly going to fall down, as we have in the race against China, to some extent Russia, in global influence, emerging technologies, and we now face a more difficult global scene than we did 20 years ago, in part, only in part, because of this overcommitment to some terrorism priorities. Now, every life that is lost to terrorism is an absolute tragedy but we still have to balance that against other priorities. And overall, the U.S. homeland has been remarkably safe over the past 20 years. And that's partially because of what we did in Afghanistan and elsewhere. That doesn't mean that the Pulse nightclub shooting isn't an absolute tragedy. It doesn't mean the shooting at Fort Hood is not horrific. And we can go through the plots that were, were actually successes for the enemy and those that we stopped. All of these are tragic, but that doesn't mean any terrorism death must completely dominate the national security discussion. And I think that's what we have to guard against now. In addition to guarding against that, something I really fear is Americans wanting to withdraw from the world. We've seen this terrible impulse throughout history. It's almost cyclical. People want to turn inward. People want to think, oh, gee, Afghanistan became a quagmire. Let's never do that again. It happened after World War I with catastrophic consequences. Obviously, the way Kabul fell was a national humiliation. But Mike, how worried are you that people are going to draw the wrong lessons from the past 20 years? Because I think it's just so important to point out that there has not been another 9-11 level attack on our country. Thank God. And hopefully there won't be again. But in some ways, this is a result of our engagement in the world, not our detachment. I tend to think that we will not turn completely to isolation, in part because of the very obvious challenge that uh, both China and Russia face. So I think there is probably a bipartisan consensus that we have to remain deeply engaged because there are other countries who are also becoming engaged. Now, that doesn't completely answer the question. And in truth, I don't yet have an answer for how we look at the types of engagements that we've had in Afghanistan over the past 20 years. And the reason I want to hesitate on that is because this has been a deeply complex 20 years. It has been, in many ways, a bipartisan success on the counterterrorism front, as I've described. It has also undoubtedly been a bipartisan failure. And not just a bipartisan failure, an executive branch failure and absolutely a congressional failure. The Taliban won. 
I think we have to be brutally honest with ourselves. Again, on the policymaking side, on the military training and equip side, on the State Department civil society side, all of those pieces and the types of authorities that Congress provided the executive branch, the type of oversight that did or did not occur, the funds that were allocated, we didn't accomplish a large part of our mission. Could we have accomplished that mission if we had done it differently? My inclination is in Afghanistan, no. We should have aimed much lower. We should have been much more humble. And we shouldn't have expended the time and resources because we weren't going to transform the society in a way that we thought a counterinsurgency program would. I think we now know for sure that building up police and security capabilities all rests on a stability and a willingness to fight and sustain and a degree of rule of law that did not exist in Afghanistan and we could not build in Afghanistan. And that was a mistake. The last thing I wanted to to discuss with you is domestic terrorism. We've been talking about foreign terrorism. We saw on January 6th, the threat of domestic terror or the radicalization that's underway, but we've also seen Oklahoma City, so much else over the years. Here on the 9-11 anniversary, how should we be thinking about the, the domestic terror threat? In one regard, I'm not terribly worried, but in a deeper regard, I'm, I'm very worried about it. The first is, um, I, I think overall, few in the United States will tend to turn to violence and terrorism, or fewer than people imagine. That, again, does not mean that we can't have absolutely tragic events, and I expect we will over the coming years. And that's something that will be politically hard for us to get our arms around. It's something that has not been prioritized over the past 20 years. And I think we have to grow those capabilities and that coordination across the FBI and other organizations in a way that we have for international terrorism. And we're much slower to in domestic terrorism, as in part illustrated by the events of January 6th. And I think the poor coordination and and although probably good intelligence, the poor operational coordination on that front. But I think there's a deeper way in which we should all be even more worried, which is simply the radicalization of political and civil discourse that is, if not driving that extreme that moves to violence, certainly making it more likely to occur. I'll I'll analogize it to international terrorism, if I may. We had many discussions about how Wahhabism, which is the extreme form of Islam promulgated by Saudi Arabia, contributed to al-Qaeda as an organization. And I would always say Wahhabis are not themselves necessarily terrorists. Of course not. But the ideology does provide fertile soil from which the more extreme elements to grow. And right now, we have an extremism in our political discourse, which provides fertile soil for the most unhinged and the most extreme to pursue violence. I think that the country can, as long as we're serious about it, handle that extreme fringe, and more often than not, we can stop them from killing our own citizens. But we will only be able to do that if we get our arms around the politically extreme dialogue that we have today and the instant calls for impeachment, the impeaching of people's integrity over absurdities. I think that that level of dialogue 
is extremely dangerous. And we have to understand in the same way as international terrorism, that the ideas may be legal and protected under the First Amendment, but they provide horrific motivation to the worst in our society to pursue a terrorism which is deeply harmful. So uh, again, I think the FBI and others can control the violence. Uh, we all need to control the vituperativeness that has entered our political discourse. Mike, thank you so much for talking about this important topic on this tragic anniversary. Thank you, James. I really appreciate you giving me the time and uh, thank you for all the great work that the Washington Post does on these topics. We'll be right back after a short break. On this anniversary of 9-11, it's essential to remember the human dimension of this tragedy. Kimberly Rex's dad, Vincent Lido, was a vice president at Cantor Fitzgerald. The financial services firm had offices from the 101st to the 105th floors in the North Tower of the World Trade Center, just above where one of the planes hit. No Cantor Fitzgerald employees who were on those floors at the corporate headquarters, survived that morning. Kimberly reflects in an op-ed for The Post on her loss and how she's coped over 20 years. She agreed to read her piece aloud for our podcast. My father was killed on 9-11. I still struggle to understand how he just disappeared. Losing someone on 9-11 was like watching them disappear. They were there, and then they weren't. On September 10th, 2001, I ate dinner beside my father in our Staten Island home. I was 19 and sat at his left as usual. I watched him shake spoonfuls of grated cheese onto his soup. He was right next to me, flesh and bones, salt and pepper hair, and a sharp nose. The next day, the plane hit. Fire raged and smoke billowed. Then the floor where he stood, the walls, the ceilings, and windows crumbled away into dust. And the people inside disappeared. At home, we thought at first that they were only missing. We made posters with names, faces, and phone numbers. Such flyers covered windows and storefronts, wrapped around bus stops and bodegas. They flapped in the wind of empty streets, begging anyone to find those lost and bring them home. We sat around tables and made phone calls. We lit candles and prayed in circles on front lawns. Cars stopped and strangers climbed out to join our vigil. If we prayed hard enough, it seemed, maybe he'd feel it and come back to us. One by one, we knew he wouldn't. My mother, my three sisters, his parents and friends, each knew in time that he was dead. But knowing that didn't change the feeling that he was missing. Later, we were given back pieces of him. We knew we were lucky to be able to bury a part of him, but he was still lost. My father's absence hung over our family. On my birthday two months later, there was a painful blank space underneath where my mother had written, Love you, Mommy, on my card. Even his name was gone. 
The following June, my grandfather fell ill. He cried on his deathbed for his son, who died in an inferno. At his funeral, my grandmother dropped a thorny rose onto his grave and said, find my Vincent and tell him I love him. On the first anniversary of 9-11, we loved ones piled into buses and rode to ground zero. The wind that day was brutal, 35 miles per hour at one point, pushing our bodies and pulling our clothes and hair as we walked down the ramp into the pit. On that hallowed ground, a weight settled inside my chest. In that space, in that whipping air, something else was there, the missing. We felt them in our steps, our bones, the wind. For the few minutes that my mother, sisters, and I bunched ourselves into a hug and sobbed, it felt as though we had found my father, finally. But once we climbed back up to the city sidewalk, he was gone again. In all the years since, I've never found him again. He's on my mind, of course, during the special moments, but also the mundane. I tell stories about him, like the time I woke him up while attempting to hang a bulletin board in my teenage bedroom. I was bending every nail I tried to hammer. He walked in, hair askew, took the hammer from my hand, drove the nail into the wall with two whacks, and left without a word. Sometimes, memories like this make me smile. Other times, I want to cry for all that he has missed, for all that I have missed without him. Sometimes I hear myself sound like other people whose dads have passed away. But then I hurt again, because my father didn't just die. He vanished. And it's not the same when death is unseen and uncertain, when loved ones are robbed of the chance to prepare and accept, and his sneakers still sit in the front closet where he'd slipped them off, and the smell of his aftershave still lingers in the bathroom. Twenty long years have passed since that painful day. So much of my life has happened. I graduated college, taught high school English for eight years, met and married my husband. I've been gravely sick and recovered. I adopted two babies and watched them grow into lovely little girls. So many things to feel happy about. But I've never stopped struggling to understand how my father's strong, stocky body just went away, disintegrated. The need to find him has never left, nor the sadness of knowing I never will. Kimberly's father was one of nearly 3,000 people who died on 9-11, from the World Trade Center to the Pentagon and a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. In New York, the medical examiner's office is still working painstakingly to identify the remains of 9-11 victims. There are 1,106 victims whose remains have still not been found. Please Go On is produced by Julie Deppenbrock with editing from Allison Michaels, Michael Duffy, and Renita Jablonski. Our sound engineer is Dara Hirsch. Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. You can find the links to the op-eds by Mike Leiter and Kimberly Rex in our show notes. If you have a moment, please give us a rating and review. I'm James Homan, and I'll be back next Friday with another episode because there's always more to say. <laughs>